Hello everyone and welcome back to the MTG Novels Project 0.4. We'll continue our reading of The Colors of Magic, edited by Jess LeBeau. However, I want to give a quick shout out to Coach at the Card Bazaar of YouTube for the idea and inspiration. Check the comments for links to his audiobooks for the first three novels. Full disclosure, I had a speech impediment earlier in life, which I have tried my best to overcome. I also apologize if you find my voice nasally or otherwise dislike it. I'm trying my best to provide you with the best content I'm able to provide. However, this being said, I'd love to hear constructive feedback which correct pronunciation issues or provides other realistic feedback that can improve the project. A legal note. This is an unofficial audiobook with original content belonging to Wizard of the Coast. This content is covered under 2017 Wizard of the Coast fan content policy. Listener discretion is advised. Blue sometimes called the color of distinction. It is characterized by calm hands and a reflective mind. A natural sedative, blue is a color of deliberation and introspection, conservatism and acceptance. Blue has almost universally appeal and is considered to be the most aesthetically appealing color. Blue is a color of respect and wisdom, but those who lean towards blue sometimes use reason for selfish and self-justified purposes. It is a color of control and passive aggression, as well as the color of the sea and the sky. Blue is for those who come blue is for those complicative contemplative people, I apologize, who exercise caution in words and actions, and for those who always weigh the options. Our story today is The Mirror of Yesterday by Jonathan Tweet. Damon had managed to levitate a few inches above the rocky beach. Arms crossed over his chest and eyes closed in concentration. He hung in midair, bobbing slightly. Three fellow apprentices watched with mixed emotions. They were excited to see Damon demonstrating a new magical ability, one that they would all have themselves someday. But each was envious that someone else had success at levitating first. Damon, for his part, was using the sound of the surf as his mantra. The waves rolling in and out had ceased to be water hitting beach. For him, it was only an audible impression, the come and go of the funda fundamental forces of the world, the cosmos breathing. He was nowhere. Then he remembered he had a forehead because it suddenly hurt. Nothing hard hit his feet, and in his hip, and in his arm. He had been unexpectedly intimate with the beach. He opened his eyes to find himself lying on it. He felt a buzz of pain on his forehead. Do you understand, someone said. Damon looked up to where Sabra, Jervis, and Anaris sat watching him. Sabra had spoken. The question, do you understand? was one that Master Wayne put to them frequently, when he had just thwarted one of their fledgling attempts at magic. There are only two questions to add, sir. No. Which meant you were still an apprentice, and yes. Which meant you were now a wizard. None of them had ever correctly answered the question. Damn it, said Damon, standing up and brushing the grit off his legs and elbows. A rock. Did you throw something at me? He looked accusingly at Sabra. She met his gaze, but her face was impossible to read. Well, she had said in intimately, 
The first time you showed that trick to Master Wayne, he was going to smack you on the head of his staff for testing your concentration. I was doing you a favor. Go to hell, muttered Damon. He put his hand on his forehead where the rocket hit him, and then ran back over to his close-cropped head. All right, I will, said Zappa. Maybe I find hell over the, among those boulders. She jumped off and stalked off down the beach, got in a moment along the big black rocks behind him. Her footsteps were soon lost in the sound of the glacial runoff that tumbled over the clip and cut through the rocks below on its way to the, to the, into the sound. Congratulations, said Anaris, raising two fists in the victory Jasper. She was smiling with genuine approval. Yeah, said Jarvis. I bet you can't wait till Master Wayne gets back so you can show him that stunt. Damon looked away. Tears of frustration burned in his eyes. He had no longer heard the soothing surf and see if he was back in the trading room, in front of the mirror with Master Wayne. As the mage closed the curtains over the mirror, he said, You'll never become a wizard. Master Wayne had leveled that judgment the day before he left, and Damon was grateful the other presences had not been here, there to hear it. Sabra always steals the show, doesn't she? Don't let her get to you. Damon came back to the beach at the sound of Anaris's voice. Yes, was all, the, could, all he could muster. Before the waves slipped from his ears once again, he had tried again and again to prove what he had it took, that certain he, of all the apprentices, would become a wizard. In that rare moment alone with his teacher, Damon had almost burst with pride when Master Wayne had told him that he was ready for a special test. First, the master shaved Damon's head. Then he led him to the draped mirror in the training room. The mage pulled the black curtain aside and revealed the glass. Whom do you see? The teacher asked his student. Damon blinked. Something was wrong, but he couldn't tell what. He looked in the mirror and saw himself. He had long brown hair, as he always had, and that seemed right to him. I see me, said Damon. Us. He wondered what the test was all about. And what day is it today? The fourth of the month, the day of the full moon. Full moon. No, said Master Rain, my head to the day. Today is the fifth. The null moon was full last night, and you have no left hair left in your head. You were seeing yesterday. Master, the mirror shows you as you were yesterday, said Master Wayne. The common mind believes the body's eyes. You become what you believe, and so you think it's still yesterday. The mind of the mage knows better than to believe what the body sees. The mirror does not sway it. I see this body of mine as it was yesterday, but I know myself to be what I am today. Master Wayne closed the curtain. You'll never become a wizard. A moment later, Damon realized what day it was, and touched his safe scalp, in front of the mirror he had lost himself. Never. Damon unconsciously ran his hand through the three-week growth on his head, remembering the present and Jervis's words. It is not just some stunt, Jervis. You try it if you think it's a stunt. Jervis didn't answer. He was looking out over the sound. Jervis was the least likely to become involved in petty competition, Damon thought. He opened his mouth to apologize for the sharp words, but, but Jervis spoke first. Master Wayne has been gone a long time, Jervis said quietly, but he didn't realize he was speaking aloud. I don't like it. This was the longest Master Wayne had ever left him alone. He had been gone more than three weeks now, and had neglected to tell him when he would return. His only words were that, were that he was visiting his colleagues in the School of the Unseen, but they had all seen the carrier pigeon he occasionally sent flying from the top of the tower. Sabwin had told them that the Kajarians used those pigeons. 
He had picked up by he had been picked up by Kajarian troops in the months following that flood, and had washed her village into the sea. It was the Kajarian alliances with Mr. Wayne that had brought Saba to the old mage tower on the hill. This apprentices assumed the master had political business in Chejaldor, but three weeks was a long time to be away, even for politics. David Tassip held the surf. Jervis, you know Master Wayne doesn't want us to talk about what he's doing, or even know about it. His allegiances have nothing to do with us. If he doesn't know what he's doing, he wouldn't have been around to take us in. Damon thought briefly of the first wizard he had found him, and when he had just been orphaned. That wizard had preferred less tasteful magic, and eventually sold Damon to Master Wayne. The memories made him shudder. Anorish stood up and stretched. He's probably going back in time and see what we were here on the beach and what we were supposed to be studying. Jervis pointed a thumb at Damon. We are studying. He's demonstrating a true trick for us that he's studying, isn't it, Damon? A voice boomed from the beach. It's bobbledygook. The apprentice jumped in resignation of Master Wayne's voice, his favorite term for tomfoolery. Damon looked past Anaris, who spun around, moving swiftly towards them from among the dark, tall rocks was their master. He had always reminded Damon of a seagull, loud and a little dirty, with hair the color of ground-up oyster shells. Who is the winder's wizard who makes the sky blue? demanded Master Wayne. He raised a garland, snapped to the sky, and shook it. He put that question out to them many times, and they were to have it solved by the time he had turned. Damon, welcome back, Master Wayne, David said lamely. To leave is to return. Who is it? shouted the wizard, pointing staff at the apprentice. I do not know, Master. Damon dropped his gaze and looked at the pebbles on the beast. I'm going to beat you ten times, said Master Wayne, swinging his staff for emphasis. Then maybe you'll know. Anaris, who's the wizard that makes the sky blue? Anaris cleared her throat. The sky is like a great mirror, and it reflects the blue of the ocean. She tilted her skin, chin upward, as if to confirm her theory. You, yelled Master Wayne. I shall beat you twenty times. Jervis, who is it? The sky is not blue, Master, said Jervis in a voice that was almost firm. And this rock, replied Master, picking up good-sized stone near his foot, is not hard. He let it fly at Jervis, who dodged expertly. Thirty times. Now, continued Master Wayne, looked around. Where is my most promising pupil, Sabra? She's as smart as she is beautiful, and that's saying a lot. I'm sure she knows the answer. What did the three of you do? Drowned her out of envy? Sabra. Master Wayne had no favorites. Damon lifted his eyes from the sand to take a close look at the weather. Had Master Tain taken a bath while he was away? The sense that something was amiss grew into the certainty. Sabra, accused Damon. Master Wayne turned, but, was, but it was Sabra standing there, not the Master. Great heavens, said Jervis. It's you, Sabra. That's amazing. Thank you, thank you, said Sabra, smiling and bowing to Jervis, Anaris, and Damon in turn. Damon tried to picture what he had seen in his mind. He could remember seeing Sabra's smooth face, not Master Wayne's wicked visage. He had seen Sabra's brown hair, her young woman's shape, and her apprentice frock. Yet he had recognized her as Master Wayne. He was convinced that was Wayne. Sabi, did you... How did you do that? he asked. They're seeing and they're seeing, said Sabra, chuckling. Anaris, I like your, your answer to Master Wayne's question. I think I'll use it myself. You're welcome to it, said Anaris. I'm sure it's wrong. Sabra's laughed, and the others joined in. By afternoon, the sun had climbed high enough in the blue sky to shine down over the cliff where Master Wayne's tower stood. Its imposing presence had guarded the cliff for decades, maybe even longer. Leading up to it along the 
sheer cliff walls was a trail of switchbacks. Next to it was a chilly waterfall that fed by thawing glaciers miles and miles inland. On rare occasions, while exploring the abandoned lands of, around the tower, the princesses had come across broken or burned items that looked to it looked as if it had once been of some use. As a game, they would try to fit names and functions to some of the more recognizable pieces. Sauber showed the first of these items to Master Wayne, quizzing him about its origins. The square stone was warm, even when wet, and buzzed slightly. Wayne slashed the blackened, warm blue object from Sabra, threw it to the ground and roared. Remnants of a not-so-forgotten war. These were things made to destroy. No good can come from them, and your ignorance will kill us all. The three youths slinked off, and Sabra was left trembling before Master Wayne's wrath. But that seemed a lifetime ago. Now any object that was found was secreted among the apprentice's things. They made a pact that the first to achieve a wizard status would have his choice of the few artifacts. Now that the sun warmed the beach, the apprentices stripped to their breech clothes and swam in the chilly water. Master Wayne had told them that magic is like the ocean. If you're impatient and calm, it will hold you up and take you to fa fantastic places far away. If you flip about and lose your concentration, you'll go under. Even if you know how to stay afloat, there are dangers lurking under the surface. From her perch on a slick, craggy rock protruding from the waves, Sabra dove into the water and swam into the shadows where the other three were wading and jogging. Or joking, rather. Someone's coming along the beach, she said. Someone driving a little wagon. He's almost around the bend, she pointed her tanned arm, glistening with seawater, toward a dark cliff further down the beach. Let's have some fun. The apprentice waited ab about the beach and began wiping themselves dry. I don't like this, said Jarvis. No one ever comes down this beach. The roads were all washed out two years ago. He's probably coming to see Narper Wayne, said confidently, and Master Wayne is exactly who he's going to meet. Don't get us into trouble, Damon glared at Sabra, but the brown-haired girl only smiled. Follow my lead. Her verse was high with excitement. Close your eyes. The others, now dried and dressed, complied. In a moment, they heard Master Vane's voice. Open your eyes, or you'll miss the demonstration. Sabra was gone, and the Master was in her place. We'll have a little sport, he said with unchristic jocularity. Out from behind the cliff came a lonely little wagon, pulled by two mule mules and driven by someone dressed in gowns of white. The apprentice sat on the sun-warm rocks, watching the wagon's slow approach, all except Sabra, who stood in eager anticipation. When the wagon was finally within distance, the homely white-robed woman driving the mules called Hail and Well Met. And Norris opened her mouth to respond, but Sabra cut her off. Approach! She yelled in Master Wayne's voice. The wagon continued on its way until the driving called the mules to halt and climb down. She stopped and surveyed the little group, stepping forward and addressed Master Wayne. Hail and well met, my friend. Before you stands a humble hero, coming from afar to find Master Wayne, who has been long a friend to the Kajarians, seekers of peace and justice, and an enemy to the evil rulers of Stormgald. We have need of his expertise. But Jervis started to protest to Damon's. Silence, Master Wayne stopped the apprentice. He faced a woman. I am Master Wayne, you ugly wench. The others were so shocked that they couldn't think to laugh. How dare you stand before one such as I, a man of magic and power, when you are but a common wench. Kneel, 
or you shall return to your con convent in the form of a more useful creature. Damon Glasson and Naros and Jervis, their faces frozen in disbelief. He didn't like where this was going, but Sava's little prank had taken him by surprise as well. She was going too far. The healer knelt and averted my, her eyes. My fault, master. I'm but a novice. Her dark eyes flickered, and she brushed the length strand of dark hair from her eyes until that untidy knot of hair on her head. She reached into her lost robe and hesitated. The Kajar and High Priestess asked most respectfully for the benefit of your knowledge. Damon hawked his head to one side. Why would the Kajarian send one man here when Master was there? Perhaps he had not traveled to Kejadar after all. Maybe something had happened to him. Damon's attention was drawn to the novice hands as emerged from her stained robe. She cast her eyes down and revealed a strange green sphere with a short stopped neck. With both gloved hands, she picked it up from in front of her, not meeting Master Wayne's glaze. Please, Master Wayne, great and powerful one, said the healer. As you know, there are many excavations across Teresier, where ancient wonders are being unearthed. We are fortunate enough to have found this magical bottle. We seek to understand its use. Surely one with your insight and wisdom could help us. Saba cleared her throat and strode over to the healer. I am an important man, she began, and I have too little time for such trivial matters. However, the Congelians are worthy of my time. Barely. I will take this artifact to the to my tower and study it. She faced through the arm with one hand. Give it to me and be gone. Just as Sabo's hand reached the sphere, the healer dropped onto rocks at her feet, and it shattered. Thick thick white smoke plumed into the air. The tendrils of smoke touched Sabra and wrapped around her like rope ropes. The other apprentice saw Master Wayne stiffen and fall. Sabra's water went into paroxysms, and blood gushed forth from her nose and ears, staining the rocks. The woman in white stood. Anarish rushed screaming and dropped her knees behind Sabra. David followed. Sabra was still, but even in dead she appeared as Master Wayne. The healer stripped off her soiled white gloves, revealing bony, greenish hands. She ended the clasp at her throat and shrugged off dirty hands. Beneath, she wore a close-fitting black leather vest and breeches, crisscrossed with haphazard leather stitches, repairs to cuts, the outfit had suffered from numerous comebacks. Set in the vest over her left breast was a black gin stone, the size of a peach pit. The skin of her arms and shoulders was mottled and dotted with pock scars. The curved scabbard perched on her hip, the black palm of a blade protruding. Her skin creased in a humorous smile, revealed thin scars staked from either side of her mouth to her neck. To Damon, she looked as if she died many times over but had somehow managed to live through the experience. It's a trick, said Jarvis, arms crossed, held tight across her chest. It's another of her tricks. Damon caught his eye and made a cutting motion with his hand to silence him. It's no trick, little fish, said the killer. Your master is quite dead. She's dead, whispered Anaris, stroking Sabra's hair that looked gray. Damon glanced up at the killer to see if she noticed what Anaris had said. Paying scant attention to the apprentices, and Pasta gave a sharp whistle. Little fish, she said. It suits my lord's purposes to know why I killed your master. The wizards of the School of the Unseen have been on good terms with my lords in Stomgard. But then this robe. She kissed Sabra's leg with a leather shod to toe. Took it upon himself to help the Kejadorans. His imprudent choice of allies was his undoing. When his peers from the School of the Unseen came looking for their fellow, tell him he met the fate of a traitor. 
Then an assassin from Stormguard defeated him. Such a fate awaits any of the rest of them who favors Kishal Dor. The assassin's wagon began to rock. The sound of metal straining against metal came from within. Then the door on the side swung open, and a metal man lurched into the sunway. The wagon rose noticeably in his strings as the thing climbed out. My lords will be pleased, said the assassin. If we had known that one little apple pile was all it took to bring down this mage, they've never supplied me with a golem or this. With her thumb, she tapped the black gemstone set in her vest directly over her heart. The golem drove over to the assassin and stood next to her, headed shoulders taller than she. Made of the ancient bronze, it had been scrubbed free of patina. The sun gla glanced off its polished hide in speckles of broken color. Under different circumstances, Damon might have found the Harkin artifact beautiful. Pick up the dead man, the assassin ordered the golem. The lumbering mass rotated its head, so it faced the ground. Its face swung back and forth as it scanned the earth. It did not move. I don't believe it, said Jarvis. His eyes hadn't left Sabo's lifeless body. Damon put one hand on Anaris' shoulder and gave a quick jerk to his head, back to the direction of the tower. He stood up. Anaris stunned, and without a word, they backed away. Pick up the corpse, ordered the assassin. Put it in the wagon. Now the golem complied. It grabbed the body by the ankle and hoisted into the airs. Girls whirred as the golem turned the body and placed it in the wagon. Damon and Anaris reached Jervis, arms still tightly wrapped around himself. It's no trick, hissed Damon. Let's get out of here. Jervis's eyes fell on the blood in Anaris's hands. Angel of mercy, he swore. It's true. With the sounds of the mailman behind them, the three apprentices stumbled through the large black rocks that bordered the beach, waded the frigid stream that fell into the sound, and came to the base of the cliff where a switchback trail began. Jervis glanced back nervously. How long will that spell last, he asked. She's dead, panted Darren. What happened? What was the thing? Who? Jervis was right, said Anaris. The assassin's bound to notice sooner or later. She's going to turn back and get us all, said Jervis. He leaped onto a boulder and tried to spy over the stones. How long do you think Cyber Spell's going to laugh now that she's... Jervis stopped short. What are we going to do? Keep moving, said Damon. we got to get back to the tower. Come on. Jervis stood still, his arms hanging linkly at his sides. That's the first place you'll look. We've got to split up. Hide. Get away. Maybe get a boat. The tower will be safer, said Nalus. We can get our fighting staffs. She can't get in. We know our way around, and there's lots of places to hide. Jervis looked past the trail below them. There was a steep, rocky slope that led to countless recesses, inlets, grottoes, and tiled pools. Go die in that tall. Go die in that damn tower, he said. She'll get you, just like she got Sabra. I can make it on my own. I did it before, and I'll do it again. Without looking back, he started picking his way recklessly down the jagged rocks of the slope. Jervis and Norris, we need to stick together. Eyes focused on his precarious path, he yelled. Shut up. I've got to get the safety. Jervis and Norris repeated her plea, but David grabbed her arm behind and compelled her on. He might be right. Let's go with him. Let him do what he thinks is right, but don't wait here. The assassin will come back when Sabra's spell wears off. Let's go. David moved ahead and pulled a nurse behind him. The switchback seemed to go on forever, one after another. It's hard to say how long they'll be climbing, how many times they turned, and how far they'd left the hike. The cliff they were claiming, where they had climbed hundreds of times, hung over the deep sound. 
It had once been a strip mine before the ice and beginning of the thaw. The cliff itself was eroded with the thaw, and a tower was doomed to slide into the water with it. Master Wayne was found a saying, It's a wise man who knows his house is built on sand. When Damon and Anaris were halfway up the cliff, they heard a scream, near and human in its urgency. Did you hear that? asked Norris. It sounded like Jarvis, said Damon. Don't stop. He shoved her for us. Anaris nodded, and they continued hiking, the silence broken only by the ragged breathing and Norris's curses. They were both winded when they reached the top of the cliff, but they had renewed urgency since hearing Jarvis's scream. They scurried to the great mechanical door at the base of the tower. Dripping over rocks and their own feet, the tower rose up more 50 feet above them. It looked like an old-fashioned lighthouse. The other side of the balcony was surrounded was that surrounded the top floor extended over from the wall. From the ground up to that balcony, the walls looked like blank stone. Though the apprentices knew there were plenty of towers, illusions hid them all. Damon and Anaris were damp now from sweat and sticky from brine. Their stringy hair sticking to their faces and shoulders, their clothes chafing their skin. They stood on a broad stone step at the top of the stairs that led to the door, leaning against the massive, latchless door, panting. The door had always seemed to Damon like a great metal mouth. It was far older than the tower, something Master Wade had savaged from ages past. The door was smooth, but the mechanisms that surrounded it were complex, with pintons, pistons, gears, and counterweights. What do... Damon bent over, bracing his hands. What do you think happened to Jarvis? And Norris cries and closed and leaned her eyes leaned against the door. I don't know. But let's talk about this inside. Neither life nor death, began Damon, reciting through his panting litany that opened the door. But existence. He paused to catch his breath. Neither chaos nor order, but existence. The litany defined how his master style magic differed from other fundamental types of Dumbayarian magic. The litany was complete, but the door stood impassive. Damon glanced at Anaris, trying to hide his desperation. From over the cliffs, they heard loose rocks falling, falling down the steep slope. It was the sound of pursuit. Oh, great heaven, whispered Darius, and he took Anaris's hand. She stood up white, centered herself for a moment, and spoke the litany. It was the litany spoke itself, played through her lungs and mouth, the way a magician plays a flute, neither life nor death, but existence, neither caress no order, but existence. With a great commotion of machinery, the iron door swung up and apart. The two princes rushed inside into the high scene atrium. The door hang shut, clanged shut behind them. Exhausted, they sank to the floor and leaned against the door. They won't be able to get in, said Anaris. We've got to prepare just in case, replied Damon. The two apprentices split up, trying to prepare for the arrival of the storm god assassin. Although neither knew what it would take to stop her. Anaris took the far, the far stairs two at a time. Out at the top, she raced along the curving walls, heading for the spiral room at the end of the corridor. She flung the door open and grabbed two metal thawed fighting staffs from the wall bracket near the door. Meanwhile, Damon looked around the atrium. He closed the wood shutters on every window and dropped bars into the holds to secure them. Obscured by illusions or not, an open window was a way in. He ran up to the second floor, whose curved and shadowy hallway overlooked the atrium. Here there was their kitchen as well as their personal cells, their study room and the sparring room. He found Anaris and Jarvis' cell, standing there with, with the window unsecured, holding a loud, large round shell in both hands. The heavy shell had been one of Jarvis' treasured finds. 
Without looking up, Nara said, Master Wayne says your life is like a nautilus shell. It starts very small and it gets bigger and bigger as you grow. But you know what he forgot? It ends. She put her finger into an empty opening where a living thing had once made its home. All that's left is something for someone to find on the beach. A trinket. A mighty boom reverberated through the atrium. Damon jumped and Naris's hand flew to her mouth. They hurried out into the hallway and looked one story down to the floor. Another boom sounded from the door into the tower. We can't fight her golem, said Anaris. We can hide, returned Damon. Maybe we can get to the training room. Maybe we can even make it to the top, to Master Wayne's chamber. He talks to other wizards far away. Maybe he has a magic glass, something we can use to call him. Maybe he can get here, or get us out. Like closing the shutters, he expected it was a futile effort at best. The training room, said Anaris. I know the key. He, she slipped back into Jarrah's room and came out with the fighting staff. She tossed one to Damon. The booming persisted. Damon followed Norris to the end of the hall, next to the spy room's door. There stood a wooden door caused with sigils and a wave-like pattern. None of the apprentices had ever been up to the training room without Master Wayne, and he had always opened the latchless door himself. Norris placed her hand in front of it and bit her lip. With two shans, she made a slow, unpracticed series of gestures, and looked at the door. I don't understand. She's Bub coming more frustrated every minute. That's exactly what he does. Exactly. Why won't it open? She repeated the gestures. The boom sounded again. This time it sounded by the sound of metal straining and giving way. What are you thinking? asked Damon. I'm trying to get through the damn door, snapped Amaris, her voice straight. No, said Damon, put a hand on her shoulder. What are you thinking while you're doing it? I think we're both going to die. Do the litany. Try it while thinking the door litany. Neither life nor death, but... I know the damn litany, Seldinaris. Narf shivered and began it again. Her hands moved slowly as she repeated a gesture. Before them, the double doors bent inward, and the heavy bronze creatures squeezed into the breach, widening it. The door before Anaris creaked open, and the two apprentices darkened, sh darted in. The door shut behind them. They raced up a narrow flight of stairs which opened to the middle of a curved room, lined with racks of scro scrolls. Near the other end was a roll of writing stats where princes practices their letters and sigils. Against the wall was a wide, low chest tucked under window. To the right was a door to Master Wayne's chambers. As the master had made clear many times, only a wizard could open that door. Near was a black curtain with a mirror behind it. Momentarily, Damon longed to gaze into that mirror and forget everything that happened today. There's got to be something here that we can use, Damon cried, frantically searching the room. Maybe there's something in Master Wayne's hardwood chest, implied Anaris. As Damon approached the chest, a flicker caught his eyes. Signal one of the mining stands was a flat, mirrored disc that Master Wayne had used to create phantoms. Horrible, but in, uh, insubstantial images of frightening creatures. Damon remembered sitting with Cybra and Master Wayne on a rocky beach, Wayne's gently lapping in the background. Master Wayne had reached into his stained cloak and produced a dish, disc, laying it gently on the pebbles before them. The disc reflected the sun in the blue sky. The blind see only the truth, he said. Wayne had tucked his age-spotted hands into his cloak and closed his eyes. Sabra reached out for the disc. She pulled it close to her face and peered in. With her forefinger, she pushed at a pimple on her chin. Suddenly, her eyes widened, and she dropped the disc on the rocks. David looked up and saw behind Sabra's a naked, hairless, human-like form with long clawed fingers and toes. Its wings made it seem bigger than it really was, 
but it was the claws, not its size, that looked deadly. It rested on the rocks behind Sabra, and she began scooting backwards toward Master Wayne. It followed her with short hops. Learning to ignore these horrific visions had been an early lesson for each apprentice, a lesson in, dis in distinguishing that which the eye sees from which the mind knows. Her magic is the magic of the impossible, said Master Wayne, of the impossible made true. Damon picked up the disc. Maybe you can use this to distract the assassin, he muttered. He tucked into a wide pocket, hidden in the shift beneath his frock. Together, he and Norris tugged at the chest cover, but it was sealed tight. They heard crashing noises from downstairs. Damon swore and kicked the chest. Then abruptly, he grabbed Norris by the forearm. When have we ever seen Master Wayne open anything with his hands? He straightened up and took a deep breath. He his eyes closed. He opened them momentarily later, when Norris whispered, Done. The chest was open, the cover gone. Perhaps there never was one. Damon thought sourly. He glanced at Anaris. Go see if you can open that door, she nodded. Inside the chest was a jumble of items and scrolls. Some Damon recognized some training exercises. Most he had never seen before. He pulled out a sextant covered with spikes. What could that be used for? He dropped it back in the chest, spying the hilt of a sheath blade. He attracted it carefully and slipped into his pocket. It clinked against the disc. He was tossing scrolls and sheets of paper from the chest searching for more weapons, when he heard a pounding in the chatting room. His heart skipped a beat. He looked up. But it was a nurse beating repeatedly on the doors to Master Wayne's private quarters. Damon picked up his staff and hurried to her side. If we could get through, she said, tears of frustration forming her eyes. I tried litany. We'd be safe. But we're not safe. We're going to die. It won't open. Nothing will open. I can't do it. Damon grasped her his staff and grasped her shoulders pulling her back into his chest. She shook in his hands as she cried. Then Anaris wiped her eyes with her wrist and sniffed loudly. Damon felt, felt a tremendous sympathy well up inside him, an overpowering desire to perfect Anaris. He felt a solemn confident, confidence and assurance in acceptance of his own wording. Without a word to Anaris, he stepped forward and placed his hands on the handle of Master Wayne's door. He pulled, not with great force, but with great confidence. The door held. David's confidence crashed. The door at the bottom of the stairs shattered. David turned and held his staff defensively in front of him. The polished, plodding colon reached the top of the stairs. Its head swiveled to consider the premises. Behind it, the stairway stretched like a long, narrow pit to the floor. David could just barely see the assassin lurking there at the bottom of the stairs. Take another step and I'll disintegrate you both, said Anaris. David peered at her in astonishment. She was holding a square blue stone in her hand. It glowed as if alive. The assassin murmured a word to the golem and talked back into the stairway. A nurse raised the stone and pointed at the machine. Don't come any closer. The golem's feet straped over the stone floor as it turned towards a nurse and began to walk towards her. Damon grabbed a nurse's arm and raised it. What is this thing? Can it really do that? A nurse answered breathlessly. Remember, we found it on the beach just after Jarvis came. Sabra was left holding it when Master Wayne found out. She looked at the go golem as it continued its march towards them. She just in a rush. The master dropped on the beast and rocked away. Sabra kept it. She learned how to make it work. The golem was now managing a lurching jog. Its arm raised for a blow. A nurse held out the fight to the creature and gave it a quick turn, as if it were a doorknob. A flash like lightning threw a nurse back against the wall, made Damon's hair rise, and enveloped the metal creature. The flash was gone. The golem was coming towards them if nothing had happened. 
They unsighted up the machine and ducked his swinging arm. He backpedaled towards the writing stands, and the golem followed. Damon raised his disc and gave it a mental command. Between him and the machine, something took shape. There was a hairless humanoid creature with long claws, the image that terrified Sabra. He flapped his wings and hissed as it hopped from foot to foot. The golem brought his spike doll down through the illusion with a spin of its whole body. And then with the sound of the gears grinding, it flumed its stance, ready to strike. Untouched, the illusion continued its caper. The golem struck again, exactly as before, exactly before it resumed its ready position. Damon watched as it repeatedly attacked without variance three times. He remembered what Master Wade said about machines that mimic life. They're still machines. Unconscious of its own action, the golem responded as it had been built to respond. In the face of an unchanged foe, its response never changed. It was struck. It was stuck, rather. Damon slowed, crawling through the discarded scrolls bef- behind the writing stand, trying not to attract the golem's attention. He looked for Nars behind the golden, near the fall wall. She was shaking, since back into her head. He waved and started to crawl towards her, still crutching his staff. Suddenly, the assassin vaulted out of the stairway and crouched on the floor, blade in one hand. She saw Norris near her, then spotted Damon behind the writing stands. Very good, she said. Her laugh was surprisingly pleasant, and reminiscence of chimes. Very smart, little fish. I was sure that thing would finish off the two of you. The fact that you both are still alive raises my opinion of you two. The first two were easy kills. She tilted her head back and raised her voice. Wayne, traitor, I hope that somewhere, somehow, you use in your magic to see this. If I can't get to you, I want you to see what happens to your precious students. An assassin took her curved blade in both hands and walked purposely towards Anaris, who was now holding her staff at the ready. Terrified, she had both hands near one end, holding the end out to keep danger at bay. Willing his disc to work at the end, Damon rose and charged the assassin. Before him, another winged creature took form. The assassin shot Damon aside to glass, moved in on Anaris faster than she then she could retreat. With a sh- swift, curving motion, the Wogan dashed past the end of the staff, grabbed the weapon center with one hand, slipped the blade underneath, where it disappeared into Anaris's flock. Anaris fell back against the wall, and the assassin pivoted to face Damon. Between them, the illusion of the imp blocked their view. Damon denied the imp, refused to place in his mind. To him, it became a wispy outline through which he could see the assassin. He dropped the disc and charged, both hands on the staff. Damon saw the assassin weave to try to view past the illusion, but his aim was clear. Grunting, he leaped through the illusion. The metal shot end of his staff, bursting through the image, and striking the assassin in the left eye. She rolled to the side as the momentum carried him past. The assassin held a hot eye over, hand over her wounded eye, but she swung her sword in a fricious arc that Damon had to pause. The illusion hounded the woman, but she ignored it. Damon heard Anaris cried out. She had struggled along the wall, grasped her Betty. Until now, she had been in front of the mirror. She, she grabbed the curtain with her free hand and toppled, pulling the curtain down. Heedless of the mirror and assassin, Damon ran to her side. There's blood anywhere. Damon, it was Anaris' voice, but it didn't come from her. It came from it in his head. He looked up and saw her reflection in the mirror. There she stood, alive again, just as she had been yesterday. There was his reflection as clean and, and carefully. Do you understand, said Anaris? David did not need to say yes. He saw his yesterday self in the mirror. You will never become a wizard, he thought into his reflection. The apprentice does not become a wizard. 
He was replaced by one. I am not my past. Damon, the moment caught his attention. He looked past his destruction. Striking him was a white shrobed healer. Damon reached under his frock, unsheathed his knife, and held it pressed flat against his forearm, where the assassin would see it. She turned as she approached. Behind her, the first image of the imp continued to draw the repeated attacks of the golem. The second image hopped and hissed, but the assassin was not distracted. Damon dismissed the second image with a thought. He looked at the assassin. He could see the wound he'd given her. A broken cheekbone. It hadn't shown her reflection. The assassin sneered as she approached. Damon knew that her mind would be able would be unable to withstand the mirror's magic if she looked at her own reflection. But the assassin fixed her gaze on him. Slowly, deliberately, she stepped closer. You hurt me, she said. And I'm not, I'm not going to kill you as fast as I killed your friend. I'll make you squirm a little first. None of your illusions are going to save you. She continued to fix her gaze on Damon and began swinging her sword before her. That's where you're wrong. The phantoms that live in the mirror in this mirror are real. With his free hand, he just over his shoulder to the mirror. The assassin's glade flicked to the mirror to her own reflection, disguised as a hearer. Her eyes lost their intensity as she stood still. Damon saw the struggle raging behind her dark eyes, the intensity of her purpose against the magic of the mirror. Suddenly, she pulled her soul back over her shoulder to strike a blow. Her training, determination, just barely winning over the mirror's magic. Welcome, healer, said Damon. His words added to the power of the mirror's magic and overcame the assassin's resistance. What her eyes saw and her ears heard, her mind believed. She dropped her or her sword and her arm fell to her side. Who are you? asked Damon, almost untaughtly. I come from Kenja Dor in search of great Master Wayne, said the assassin. She seemed a little bit confused, her hands closing the fists and opening in nervously, as if internal struggle continued, but she played her part. I am a former student, said Master Wayne. I welcome you to his home. He held out his arms to embrace her, and she returned bracing kind. You are what you see, he said. But what is Master but where is Master Wayne? persisted the impostor, uneasy in the brace. I have an ancient artifact which we Kelsadorans need his guidance on. She began to pull away. I am what I will, continued Damon. He plunged a knife into the small of her back. The woman started but backed away in shock. She turned and collapsed, bleeding, the knife sticking from her back. Her eyes were wide with surprise. Damon stooped over her, yanked the knife free, and planted it in her throat. Her reflection made in the mirror. Damon towards, towards it and his back to the corpse. Be gone, he said, and the reflection was gone. Anaris's image remained. Thank you, dear Anaris, he said, and he dismissed her reflection as well. In the mirror, he saw the golem, the creature with no mind, still locked in feudal combat with the imp, a creature with no body. He was considering what to do with him when someone grabbed his ankle and yanked it to the unforgiven floor. It was the assassin. Blood no longer ran from the gash where Damon's life had struck her in the throat. Her eyes were dark now, lit with some eerly force. The black gem in her vest glowed like a cold heart. Her hand, strong as a vice, pulled Damon onto his back and under the weight out of a living corpse. They clamped onto his neck. His face bulged and he couldn't breathe. He clawed at the assassin's face, but she seemed impervious to pain. Your little trick has killed me, said the assassin in a hollow, ragged voice. The ever speech made blood dribble past the knife in her neck. By my drove of the night. Death makes, me, death makes me stronger. She dropped her weight on Damon's belly, and the last of his air in his lungs was squeezed out in his throat. You tricked my mind. 
but my mind has now been sacrificed to the night. You'll have no more luck with your trickery. That's all your kind of magic is. Trickery. Damon's frantic struggles were useless beneath the weight of the powerful, skilled, relentless assassin. He closed his eyes to gather what was left of his concentration. He remembered Master Wayne saying, The mind that is moved is not the true mind. David opened his eyes and cast his clay at the imp that held the golden in an endless cycle of attacks. He willed the imp to move towards the assassin. Staring down at Damon's face, the assassin continued, You wizards of the sea and sky think you understand magic, but your magic is soft and harmless, insubstantial as the, wizard, as the images you create. The golden followed the image of the imp, striking and striking with the massive covered ball. At the end of its left arm, now Damon willed the image to cover the assassin. When you're dead, she said, the assassin will make you a zombie of you, so you can serve in my, lo in my lords. In the blare, the golem brought his mighty weapon and smashed the assassin's head to, to one side, cutting her off her taunting speech. The impact knocked the corpse off Damon, and as he gasped for breath, he willed the imp over the assassin again. The golem finally struck in flesh instead of phantom, and smashed the fleeing corpse beyond recognition. A blow shattered the black stone in the assassin's chest, and she stopped moving for good. For a long while, Damon rested on his hands and knees, regaining his breath, trying to comprehend all that had happened to him. Finally, he rose, strode across the training room, and opened the door to Master Wayne's chamber, the door that only wizards could open. To find it, he found not only stairs, but an empty shaft. He levitated into Master Wayne's chamber. There he find nothing but a round room, bare walls, bare floors, five open doorways leading to a balcony that circled the top of the towers. He walked over the balcony and looked ov out over the sound. Damon saw the deep orange sky and black clouds. At his will, the sky shifted from orange through red to purple and then blue with white clouds. He chose to see the sky as a nice clear shade of blue. There on the balcony, he awaited his colleague's return. That was The Mirror of Yesterday by Jonathan Tweet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.